Well, one of the things that we were told as a missionary, maybe this was just missionary stuff, was the look once and you're not a man. Look twice and you're not a missionary. I think that's so dumb. <laughs> I got to be honest. I think that's horrible. That's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. Hey, it was saying. said throughout my whole mission. I, I, on mine too, right? And I just, I think it's dumb. I think it's immature. And I think it's not healthy. Okay. Well, where, where is that. healthy? That, I guess that's the question, right? Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, this is Nick Galetti. I'm the host of this episode of the LDS Perspectives Podcast. Our guest today is Ty Mansfield. Ty Mansfield is a past president of North Star International, a faith-affirming resource for Latter-day Saints addressing sexual orientation and gender identity, and who desire to live in harmony with the teachings of Jesus Christ and the doctrines and values of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Ty remains a board member of that organization and was also a contributing writer to the volume A Reason for Faith, Navigating LDS Doctrine and Church History, published in 2016. He joins us today to address his contribution to that book, as well as offering his thoughts not just on homosexuality, but human sexuality and attraction from an LDS perspective. So, welcome, Ty. Thanks for coming in. Welcome. Glad to be here. So, as a matter of background on yourself, you are an individual, couple, and family therapist, as well as an adjunct professor still at BYU? Or you, I am. I do you still are. teach adjunct at BYU. So, how, how long have you been a therapist? How long have you been teaching? I started grad school in 2007 and started seeing clients pretty pretty quickly after that just as part of the program but I've been I've been licensed since 2009 okay 2009 2010 I don't want to ask you to rank which one's better being a therapist or a teacher that's not fair and I couldn't give you an answer because okay. I love both <laughs> so you say you have a, a master's degree you have your doctorate your formal education and and that's how you would rank your education formally but on this topic of human sexuality and the I guess particularly homosexuality and the narratives around that, what, what would you give your social, your life experience degree? I think I started coming to terms with or needing to come to terms with my own sexuality, you know, back in 2000. It was after my mission. It was a couple of years after I got home on my mission, maybe 2001, 2002. Through that experience, I there was probably about a year where I experienced something of an existential crisis because it was this, you know, looking for resources or finding resources, but they weren't the kind of resources that I was looking for because I wanted to be, I wanted to find a way to resolve it and stay faithful. Like that wasn't never, that was never a question in my mind, but it was just so hard to find either people who were active and sort of integrated in a healthy way. Um, You know, most of the people that I found were in support groups and I think just by nature, people who are going to support groups are struggling. And so I could either find people who are struggling on one side and active or I could find people who were who had just come out and just kind of throw their hands up. Yeah, some of may some of may have, have have seen it that way, but others may have seen it as kind of moving on, moving forward, and uh, you know, in more of kind of a, a liberation from rather than giving up on sort of gotcha. way of framing. I could find a lot of people who had left the church and claimed to be happy and that sort of thing. But that just, but neither of those were what I wanted. And so I had to, it was, it was a pretty long process for me to kind of tease apart different camps, different arguments, and take the things that resonated with me from 
any of those or all of those and kind of leave the things that didn't. At, some, at one point, I, I kind of had this thought that I had to become a very skilled deconstructionist just for the sake of spiritual and emotional survival. And that's kind of how it felt to me for, for several years. And, and that's been a blessing because now I can see through. I've had to learn to kind of challenge assumptions and pick through arguments and in order to really understand, to get to the heart and the truth of, of different ideologies, arguments, that sort of thing. And um, so I think my, my education definitely through life experience began much earlier, but formal education started later. Now, this topic, again, of, of homosexuality, is it's kind of called generally. This is a topic that you've been speaking on. You've had a lived, lived experience. And in many ways, your marriage and family therapy has kind of a that it's couched in that in, in many respects from what I can gather. Mm-hmm. So. Moving forward, you do have this essay that you contributed to the book, A Reason for Faith, that you entitled Homosexuality and the Gospel. As I went into that book or into that essay, I quickly got the impression that you were writing about something that was more than simply just homosexuality, but it ended up being a commentary on on human sexuality and attraction to anything in life, really. Mm -hmm. So calling this a commentary on homosexuality is not exactly a proper characterization. So how would you characterize your essay in that book? I would certainly say that it starts with sexuality generally and then kind of moves into exploring how some of those themes relate to homosexuality because so often I'll hear people say or make comments to the effect that we need to understand homosexuality better in the church. And my first thought is we need to talk about sexuality better in the church. Like we struggle talking about sexuality, period, in a really healthy way, right? And so I think until we get there, it's going to be difficult to have a really healthy conversation on these others, but it's like we kind of inverse those. Because there's times where, you know, again, with the family class I teach at BYU, we'll talk about human sexuality and sexuality and marriage specifically. And sometimes there's this, almost this feeling of we can talk about those ex- anywhere except the Joseph Smith building, you know? <laughs> like these are things that people, it's so much a part of our human experience but there's something in our culture that has led us to sort of compartmentalize spirituality and sexuality. And to me, that feels sort of pandemic in our culture. My world has sort of thought about this from both ways. Like, how do we have a healthy conversation about sexuality, period? And then from my life, my own life experience, obviously having like understanding same-sex sexuality or just same-sex attraction is a critical part of that just because I've wanted to understand and and come to a healthy place in my own experience. Well, and that's a hard thing to do because where do you have a conversation about this? Can you have a Sunday school class on this? Is this something that gets brought up? Yeah. I mean, where, where do we as a people get to talk about this since we are obviously, as you say, having, having some difficulty, I guess, understanding it. Maybe. Um, I mean, I think that there are certainly places that we could, Maybe sometimes, because I was just even recently in my own ward, we had a, like a, it was not even a fifth Sunday thing. It was a, they just did this breakout panel for youth and they invited, they wanted to talk about difficult topics, sexuality being one. And they had, uh, they brought in several therapists as like part of a panel. And they, in one room, they brought all the parents and another room, they took all the youth and, and we just talked about hard topics. This was during Sunday, Sunday meetings. It was a Sunday night. Okay. No, it was a, it was Sunday night. But it was, but it was sponsored like the young women and the young men's presidencies were the ones that that sponsored this hmm. thing. So if there are ways that that we can uh, identifying those different options. You know, just recently we did a fifth Sunday in my ward where we talked about just mental health in general, and they invited me to give that presentation. 
And so, and so I've been impressed that I, it seems like our, our leadership, our local world leadership has really wanted to explore harder topics. And I think that uh, a lot of that initiative is going to be left to the local ward. But there are ways that we can, and I think if we can just either, whether it comes from general leadership or just other resources that kind of lay out what some of these possibilities are, to explore these in a way that's faith-affirming, on some level, I think it has to start in the home. Like, again, for example, like with my students, I'll ask my classes how many, when we get to the, the section on marital sexuality, marital intimacy, I'll ask them how many of you came from a family that had a healthy culture around sexuality? Not did you have the talk or <laughs> the some talks. Yeah. Did you feel like there was a healthy culture that anytime you had a question, you felt comfortable just talking to your parents about it? And I would say maybe about 20%, which sometimes surprises me. There's been more than I expected there would be. 20% but 20% is high still pretty low. I, okay. I thought I was expecting far less. Oh, okay. Because um, I didn't grow up. I, you know, I, I certainly didn't. And I don't think that there, I don't know a lot of people who really did. So, but to see 20 people or 20% of my students, you know, that's, that was impressive. That's percent. Yeah, but 20%. And this is obviously just a, a, you know. Pretty informal. That's a pretty crude sample. But overall. Almost every semester and in every class, I'll ask that question. And roughly, it's about the same, right? And, and so I think, again, there's just this, we, we struggle to have a healthy, mature, comfortable conversation. And by that, I mean more of a, a culture of conversation or a culture of openness in our families where really that's the right place to be having these conversations, and most of the church is not having the, the experience, or at least the majority of the church, from what I can perceive, is is not having that experience. And so then you throw these more difficult, you know, and that's the general experience of sexuality. And so then you throw these more difficult topics, whether that's sexual orientation or or, or gender identity or even intersex issues, uh, differences in sex development. There's these different, these much more complicated, more nuanced issues. Maybe they challenge some of our assumptions about our doctrine in ways that we're uncomfortable with. I think some people would just rather it all go away. Yeah. You know, and that we not. And so the the concern that I've often had is that it tends to be the people that are that are more uh, persistent in having these conversations tend to be those coming from a more liberal perspective. So it's good that there are those that are wanting to kind of push us into having this conversation. But too often the conversation tends to be more one-sided. And I think there are a lot more perspectives on some of these topics, a lot of which get lost by virtue of some of the more popular cultural narratives. Well, and it's, it's one of those things too, like when you have these issues where we say we should have more of a talk about this at home or more of a this or more of that, there's always the chicken and the egg, right? Which, what comes first and where does that come from in some respects? So in order for parents to know how to have these conversations with kids, they need to know what these things are, but who's supposed to teach them? Because at some point, someone has to teach these things. Yeah. And so in some respects, when I saw your essay, I kind of thought that here we are, and you use the word deconstruction. Uh-huh. You really kind of start out by essentially asking the reader to deconstruct what they've come to the table with as far as their preconceived notions of human sexuality. Not yeah. just about homosexuality, although, you, like you say, you do get there. Mm-hmm. And it does apply. But you start out with this idea, and I think the first three words of your essay is, sexuality is complex. 
Mm-hmm. And most people don't like to discuss complex things, right? Mm-hmm. We want life to be simple. Mm-hmm. We want everything packaged in a bow really nice. Mm-hmm. So this is a complex topic, but... Do we want it to be complex? Is it just complex by nature? Why is it complex? I think it's complex by nature. And in some ways, I think we need it to be complex. I, I know that we don't necess- we may not want it to be complex, but I think when we oversimplify things, it becomes really problematic. Or, you know, again, in the church, we sort of love platitudes. And there are a lot of aspects of life that just don't, that can't be boxed into platitudes. And so for me, it was really important because, again, it was... When I came out, I don't even really like that term. When I started kind of looking, kind of coming to terms with my own um, feelings, there was, there was, it seemed like there were two narratives. It was you, you love and accept yourself and embrace who you really are and pursue a same sex mar- or same sex relationship and identify as LGB, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Uh, or on the other side, you're sort of repressed and uh, subject to internalized homophobia and you stay in the church. And you use the term same-sex attraction, which is inherently pathologizing, and you hate yourself, and you're probably going to take your life at some point. Like there was, I mean, those are kind of extreme versions of that, but sometimes it feels like those are the extreme narratives. And I think there's been a lot of nuancing on on all of in all of that since uh, I first opened up. But I think for so many people, you know, I'm see, I have a client right now who is. you know, identifies as transgender, and and his basic understanding of his experience is, I can transition and be happy, or I can not transition and eventually kill myself. It's and that binary. It's, it, it's be just one this or very the other. these very simplistic ways of thinking. I can be I can ha- I can be true to myself and pursue a same sex relationship, or I can not be true to myself and be lonely and isolated and be celibate and or bring in some poor woman into this situation and force myself into uh, a sham marriage, right? That's sort of how often the language is. And, and my, yeah, many of the narratives are kind of po- positioned that way. Well, yeah. And even just, was it, la- was it 2013, 2014 when the um, TLC show, My Husband's Not Gay. But when that was in the media and was being, was, was pretty controversial. I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times people used or talked about the idea of being in a sham marriage. These are sham marriages. That I am in a sham marriage. And at one point, I thought, if somebody else tells me I'm in a sham marriage, <laughs> I'm going to punch them. And and it's it's really frustrating. But it also opened up for opened up some conversation for even some LGBT affirmative folks to say there are a lot of ways to look at this stuff, and that there are people if they negotiate their relationships in healthy ways, they can have really healthy, satisfying mixed orientation marriages, right? So it kind of opened up that conversation in that way. But again, there's these very simple narratives, very thin narratives that um, I think need to be thickened a bit and textured in order for us to really understand all of the options, all of the possibilities, particularly for those who are looking for ways to reconcile their faith with you know, what they're feeling and experiencing healthily and in harmony with the teachings of the church. Well, we live in a Facebook, Twitter world where we have to simplify. We have to condense down our opinions and our feelings and everything. And for some reason, people feel compelled to share everything that they feel. And, and it, but it's got to be short, concise, simple. And that's part of the disagreement that I think happens is we don't understand the years of lived experiences that came to present in that moment. Yeah. So it is complex by nature, and that's okay. 
So we should be, that's the first deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It was, we have to be willing to say, this is complex and that's okay. Yeah. And that's not easy for a lot of people. But as we look at this kind of further, the idea is scary to more, most people because it's, you're, you're pushing them into a period of intellectual, emotional uncertainty where they're having to learn new things. Mm-hmm. So your article continues, or your essay, I should say, continues to put out more information and, and guide them through this deconstruction and building it back up with certain things in mind, such as things that are good, things that are bad, so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. you still are defining certain boundaries, certain parameters on attraction, intimacy, and so on. Yeah. You're also adding those additional layers. And specifically, you talk about the term same-sex attraction, mm-hmm. which is used a lot in the church describing homosexuality, but even that isn't, it's complex. So how do you use the word same-sex attraction in both a healthy way and, I guess, by contrast, the way that is should be avoided, maybe, within an LDS context? The term same-sex attraction specifically? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just important to see, because, again, historically, even in, like, uh, LGBT circles, uh, the word homosexual is is avoided because it's been typically used in, like, a pathologizing context. So you don't ever see like heterosexuals and homosexuals. You'll see heterosexuals and lesbian, gays, and bisexuals, right? So there's an avoidance of of language that has been perceived as either inherently pathologizing or coming with sort of historical cultural baggage that is pathologizing, right? So that's where a lot of the criticism around the term same-sex attraction comes from that are coming from a more LGBT-affirming perspective. And yet, but when you get into the into the into the research, if you really want to do a good research and you just want to look at kind of the nuts and bolts of human experience, you have to start with the experience of attraction, right? And there's even one researcher who's lesbian identified uh, psychologist who is on several review panels for various journals. She said we have to stop accepting research that begins through the lens of identity. Identity is something that comes later. If we really want to want to understand the nature of human sexuality and human experience of attraction, you can't start with identity. But most of the world doesn't do that. You know, it's hard I, to separate. The I two. feel, therefore, I am. Right? right. And so, to your question, there's this being able to just talk about the nature of attraction. Later, we can talk about how persistent that is, how non-persistent that is. Uh, there's a colleague of mine who, again, gay identified, and he has he's sort of developed this kind of multi-dimensional scale where he actually looks at different domains of attraction. So there's erotic attraction, there's affectional attraction, romantic attraction, aesthetic attraction. If somebody wanted to, I think if I was ever to redo it, I would maybe look at uh, spiritual. Are there spiritual components to attraction, right? And that's just that's slicing up just this general domain of attraction into multiple domains. But we don't think like that, right? Or or aversion too. There's that side. So if someone thinks someone of the same sex is aesthetically attracted, but they don't want to they don't think of them as erotically attracted, what does that mean? Anyway, there's all sorts of ways to look at this. And then in the book I kind of look at orientation is more of that, which which of these domains might be more persistent than others. And then you get into behavior and identity. Well and so much of what we're talking about does affect behavior, which is why this is a an issue at all, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything mm-hmm. comes down to our choices 
And that's kind of the LDS hat that we put on, right? Yeah. It's not so much a matter of these attractions, but what we do with them. One of the things that you present in the article is a four-tier approach to understanding sexuality. And I want to make sure we give enough time for each of the four tiers. So not necessarily a comprehensive thing, but just so people know what they are and kind of get a taste for it. The first one that you put out is attraction and desire. It's more of that subjective experience of what I'm attracted to, what I desire. And desire is, again, we can, we can desire things for different reasons, right? I can desire things because I feel lust. I can desire something because I feel love. I can desire, you know, just because I desire it doesn't mean that it's necessarily virtuous or whole immoral or healthy or, or yeah. whatever, right, moral. And so looking at just this, what, what is the general experience of attraction and desire? What are these different domains of attraction and desire? I believe that there are certain domains of attraction that God would say, yes, I want you to cultivate that. I want you to nurture that. And there are other domains where I think God would say, I want you to bridle that. You know, the, the Book of Mormon talks about bridling our passions, not eradicating them. But if we don't, and the only language we use is, it's okay to be attracted, just don't act on it. It ends up sort of feeling flat and unhelpful. Well, it seems like a, a battle that people have to fight constantly, and that's not yeah. healthy either. Yeah. So for me, it's sort of I think there's a there's a sense in which being aesthetically attracted to someone else does that. There's no I don't think there's any moral question there. I think that if I am uh, even affectional attractions, that's one of the one of the domains. Developing and fostering emotional bonds and uh, affectional connections with others of the same sex, I think that is wholly virtuous and good. And I think certainly God would smile at, right? In the chapter I talked about this the experience where President Dahlquist and his counselors being released from the young men's presidency. And in the, the original- general young men's presidency. The general young, young men's presidency. And in the original draft that I submitted, I actually had a picture of the, kind of as the camera panned on them, that they were just sitting there in general conference. Here's the camera panning on them and they're holding hands. To me, I can only see God smiling on that. Like here are men who have worked together. They have served together. They probably feel a deep kind of love and affection for each other. I can't imagine that there is a gay couple out there who loves each other more than God loves. The Father loves men. Can't imagine it. And so what does that say about the gospel? That we, we just shouldn't, we should, you're not supposed to love men, right? Well, to the contrary, right? We, we're supposed to grow in love a gospel love, a charity love, and an affectional love towards others, others of the same sex and opposite sex, right? But certainly in this context, those of the same sex, that's good, it's healthy, nurture it, grow it, and, uh, but that's different than erotic domains of attraction or romantic. So the next one then is, we gets to that. It's the sexual orientation or persistent patterns of attraction. That sounds like it's leading to that point where mm -hmm. it gets, what, could you say immoral? Is that that? No, I wouldn't say that. Okay. I wouldn't say that orientation is immoral or that there's even domains that are immoral. I would say, because again, if we're just talking about attraction, there may be domains of attraction that are more persistent, not necessarily immoral, but certainly that I may have to channel. Cautionary, maybe. Yeah, certainly. But when you think of someone who is, you know, exclusively attracted to the opposite sex, they make a covenant with one person with whom they're going to spend time in all eternity. They don't stop being sexual beings who never experience attraction to anybody out other than their spouse. They are going to continue to experience attraction to other people. 
It's a matter of bridling and channeling those attractions. And, and we wouldn't say it's immoral to be attracted to somebody else other than your spouse, but we would say you better keep your thoughts clean and you better keep your, you know, you, you better learn to, to focus and channel and bridle that energy in healthy ways. But it, it can apply on all levels, right? Some may say that there isn't a healthy way to bridle or to, to even entertain it. What do you say to that? Entertain what? Same-sex attraction? No, even opposite-sex attraction. Just attraction to anyone outside of your marriage. I can think of a handful of people, actually. That, that would say that? Yeah. To me, I don't even just know. I don't even understand how. That just doesn't <laughs> even feel human to me. I mean, I can certainly understand. Well, the fear is that it plants a seed. But, but I, I think where we're talk, what we're talking about is, because I think there are ways to entertain that, even on the level of thought, that takes us into uh, problematic territory. I'm talking about just the the neutral experience of attraction, not the giving it a second thought, right? Or starting to to entertain or fantasize or think about. I think that's taking us into uh, an area of agency where we do have agency to not indulge even in thoughts that would be problematic, well, right? Well, one of the things that we were told as a missionary, maybe this was just missionary stuff, was the look once and you're not a man. Look twice and you're not a missionary. I think that's so dumb. <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta be honest. I think that's horrible. That's a horrible thing. It's a hey, horrible it was saying. Said throughout my whole mission. I, I, on mine too, right? And I just, I think it's dumb. I think it's immature. And I think it's not healthy. Okay. Well, I'll, where, I'll where is that. healthy? That, I guess that's the question, right? I think, I think healthy is in that place of, and this is kind of where my, my Buddhist tendencies come in, right? Where I think there's, there's a, we, we need a capacity to just sort of be present with. And then in that place of presence, we can, we can then make choices about what we want to do with what is. And sometimes those consistent choices over time can even change what is. But at the beginning, we're just starting with where we are. There's a Buddhist spiritual practice called mindfulness that's become very uh, kind of popular in, in, in Western therapy. mental health yeah. and in therapy because of its mental health benefits. But the substance of mindfulness or the essence of it is uh, cultivating a practice of presence and attunement with the now and doing so from a place of non-judgment. And I think it's it's a very healthy place to be. It's a very healthy practice. And so, but from that place of presence and attunement, we can make conscious choices about what we want to do and where we move. And that's where the gospel is really powerful. The gospel, I think, says less about what you should or should be, shouldn't be feeling at any moment than how we respond to what we feel or don't feel at any given moment. And, and certainly, I think some of the questions that come up in mental health can even speak to healthy ways of, of fostering spirituality. Excellent. Next one is sexual behavior and relationships. So what about that one? I, and that one's easy, I think, because that's where when you, because when you, in some of the tiers, because I created this, I mean, this, this kind of four-tiered framework is an, um, kind of an integral model that I created from two different tiered frameworks that different, two, two other scholars had created. And one was just attraction, orientation, and identity. And one was orientation, behavior, and identity. And I just kind of bring those two, because I think that they each kind of speak to different ways of slicing this up. So I put those together. And behavior is, this is the one that at least church behavioral prescriptions are going to speak most to, this is the area where we have the greatest capacity to exercise agency. I can choose what I do or don't do. I may not have a lot of control over what I feel or don't feel, but I can choose what I do or don't do. All right, the last one. This is probably the one that has the greatest deal to do with the various narratives that we hear, and we've kind of used the word already, but it's identity. Mm -hmm. So maybe speak to it in, within the context of this four-tier system. 
So identity is, it's where narrative comes into play. What is the story that I'm creating around what I feel? How am I incorporating this now into a sense of self? And there's different ways to look at this because I think some people get caught up in what words people use. You shouldn't use same-sex attraction. You shouldn't use gay or you should or whatever. And it, But I think it's less about what words we use and more about the paradigms and stories and narratives that kind of frame how we see ourselves, how we see the world. Because someone may use the word gay, but they use it in a way that's kind of shorthand for I'm attracted to other guys or other girls, right? And that's kind of where, um, in this last FAIR conference, uh, Ali Isom gave a talk. She, from Public Affairs, gave a talk and said, you know, people, you know, young, um, you know, a 20-year-old might use the term gay different than... They do. Someone older might use the term gay. Yeah. And they do. And so I think, and I think to, to one of her points was, we need to be really careful to listen and sensitive to listen and ask what people mean when they say, rather than making judgments just about that word. And so, and I, and I do believe in the power of identity. I believe words are powerful. I believe how we incorporate the stories that we employ to incorporate our, sen- our sexuality into our sense of self is important, and not just in a same-sex capacity. Like I remember um, Elizabeth Smart, she was talking about uh, how when she was abducted, the day after she was abducted and people were going into the, the mountains looking for her. And one of the things that she said, she says, but by this, by this point, he had raped her already. And she said, I could hear people calling my name, but I didn't call back because I was now the licked cupcake, the chewed gum. I was now inherently defiled because of this fact that I had been raped by this individual. That comes with a narrative. That's a story about sexuality. That's a story about self that relates to my experience with sexuality, whether that was by my choice or not by my choice. Positive or negative. Positive or negative. It plays all over. And so, like, for me, when I was first coming to terms with things, I felt a ton of shame about sexuality, about what I was feeling. And I think, I remember going to a, I'd kind of reached a point where I thought if I don't get some help, because I'd never told anybody, that if I don't get some help, I'm going to, I'm probably going to do something I'm going to regret. And so I finally went, I hadn't done anything at this point, but I confided in a bishop. He had recommended a counselor. And so I was seeing a counselor, but Again, it was so hard to just even use the word same-sex attracted. But I, and I remember at one point I decided to identify as gay. And for me, that was a very empowering healing experience. And mostly because I think it helped me to kind of work through so much of the shame that I felt. And, and that was a very important part of my journey. And it was probably, I'm trying to think of when that was. That was probably, it was probably two years later. I remember having a very specific spiritual experience that if I continued to identify as gay, I would limit my progression. I, dis- I made a very conscious decision at that point that I would stop using that word. And, and this was very personal. This was just me. And to really sort of stop boxing sexuality into these, you know, kind of uh, reified categories, right, that we have for them that are, are really not scientific or, or and are much more messy than I think we tend to Thing. But I think the, the key is how do I inform, how do I see, how do I incorporate my sexuality into a sense of self? And I think there are lots of ways to do that. I think words can help that process. I think words can hinder that process. Words can complicate that process. There's one individual that's, that made the comment to the effect that for a church leader to say that homosexuality is a mortal experience, and, and this is an individual who is adamantly gay, and to be gay is a very important part of their identity, that that was, it was insulting and it was assault on his sense of self. And I think to me, 
that says more about how deeply that individual is invested in their sense of identity and the narrative in which they live their life than it is about facts about sexuality or facts about the after afterlife or whatever. And I think with a lot of things, I think how we experience sexuality, how we experience relationships, there is a lot we don't know about the next life. And I think that there is, I think every, a lot of this just requires a high level of humility. I mean, we don't, we don't know what procreative processes look like in the next life. We, you know, there's obviously a lot of questions about polygamy and plural marriage and if or how that plays out in the next life. And so there are a lot of domains of how we experience sexuality and relationships that just require a high level of, of sort of surrender and humility and a willingness to sort of live in this kind of a place of some, some level of ambiguity, right? And so, and certainly identity is one of those. But, but if, if we tease it all apart, like I don't believe that I'm not going to love men or be attracted to men in some capacity in the next life. But I don't believe for a second that that those that I'm going to be attracted to men sexually or erotically in the next life. But I do think God wants me to develop and foster a deep kind of love, uh, an infinite kind of love for other men. So all of these, it's kind of like again, how do we how do we deconstruct or tease some of these layers apart so that we can look at them and maybe even have a conversation about different layers? Because if it's just about are you gay or are you not, or does it continue? Is it is it going to change or is it not? I think some of those are probably so simplistic as to be unhelpful and probably simplistic enough to actually be harmful. There's a lot more that we can say about this topic, and, and it does get deeper, and I encourage people to read uh, Ty's essay in the book. But this does really come down to certain gospel or doctrinal scripture sources even, one of those being that we know that we are beings that, that we either act or acted upon, in which case... Some of the narrative that we hear around sexuality, specifically homosexuality, if I can use that term. Now you made me think I can never use that term again. <laughs> um, that a lot of times when we have that conflict, it seems like that we're letting whatever those attractions are govern us more than we are in control of them. Is uh -huh. that what your experience is? That problems become when we are acted upon by these things rather than act? Or is that... that's even seems over, overly simplistic, maybe. Yeah, I certainly think that the more, you, you know, um, the more knowledge we have, the more power we have, the more I understand what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling, you know, and when I feel what I feel, I think, you know, um, I think the more self-awareness we have, the more power we have to be agents to act. Um, because even when I look at, look at like elements of my past and I would feel things and I didn't know why I was feeling it. And a lot of that came with just, I just didn't understand emotions very well. I didn't understand how humans worked, you know, that sort of thing. And, and now with my understanding, a much clearer understanding of how emotions work and how the interplay between mind and body and emotions and I can affect changes in different in ways that I could not affect changes. I didn't know how to affect changes then. And I think as we grow in knowledge and light and truth, we grow in power and capacity to act and not to be acted upon. But I think um, sometimes people are sort of in this space of being acted upon because they don't have knowledge. And so it's important to grow in knowledge. A scripture also comes to mind that when we talk about this next life, experience. There's the scripture that says that we're going to have the same sociality that exists here, but it's going to be coupled with eternal and celestial glory. 
how then does what you've talked about, how does that play into that scripture? Let me actually start with a different scripture. In DNC 76, and this is one that's become very important and meaningful to me personally. In DNC 76, in the vision of the celestial world where either the Lord or how Joseph Smith articulates it, it's, it's the, the sociality of the church of the firstborn. And it's this space, this community, this sociality where we see as we are seen and we know as we are known. There's this infinite kind of intimacy and capacity for intimacy, both to see and to be seen, to know and to be known. And if we are taking on the divine nature and if we're going to define the nature of God as love, an infinite capacity to love and be loved. And I think that to me is one of the most important places to start with. And anything that falls short of that is in some ways disordered. And here we are in this life. We're here to practice toward that kind of sociality. And so practicing intimacy, practicing transparency, practicing authenticity, practicing love. All, this, is, this is what all of the commandments are about. But the, and DNC 76 says nothing about marriage. This is the collective experience of the sociality of those who are exalted beings. Later, we get some stuff about marriage, but I think that's, I think, in, at least in the context of the way or the order in which the Lord revealed how we do relationships, marriage is secondary to this other stuff. And that's, com- that's collectively, that's communally. That's me with all other men and all other women. I don't believe that sociality, uh, if this is speaking to your question, that, that somehow because there is homosexual experiences or people here, that there will be there. I don't believe that for a second. I believe there's all sorts of qualities or experiences in mortality that are just part of the mortal experience through which we learn by experience to know the good from the evil or through which we have the opportunity to develop godly capacities. And I think this is one of them. Whether it's faith, whether it's long-suffering, whether it's patience, whether it's learning to trust in the Lord, to have faith— There are so many godly capacities that can be developed in response to or according to how one responds to their sexuality that will be eternal whether or not how one experiences their sexuality in this time and place will be eternal. I think one of the things that also to me is very important in how we see this is it's very common to sort of see often when we talk about this issue, people say, well, look look at polygamy. Look at the changes I have with me. Look at blacks in the priesthood. And then they'll point to, you know, the church's position on homosexuality or LGBT issues. And it just becomes another kind of platform to, to assume that the church is wrong on this and that it will change. If we can liken it to these other policies. And I think one of the the metaphor that I think has been most, or at least the the the, the church's position that I think actually does apply most or provides the most accurate metaphor or lens through which to understand their position position on this is the position on evolution. The church has taken no position on evolution and basically has said in an early first presidency statement that the scriptures tell us why God created man, not how God created man. And I think that that same experience could be applied to this, right? The scriptures tell us why we're here, they don't tell us the how of all of our experiences. And, and we certainly don't know, as Elder Oaks and others have said, leave the science to the scientists. You know, in terms of understanding the nuts and bolts of sexual development, uh, sexual attachment, things like that in the human experience, we're here to talk about the gospel. 
and what God is asking of us in order to grow closer to him. Excellent. We want to thank Ty Mansfield for coming in. Again, he's the author of an essay in a book called A Reason for Faith, Navigating LDS Doctrine and Church History. And his particular essay was on homosexuality and the gospel. We'll put a link in the posting of this podcast episode for those of you that are interested in purchasing a copy of that. But thank you very much, Ty, for coming in and talking about this. Thank you for having me. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Uh, But the idea is to be able to, as you're reading through a verse, there will be hyperlink text there that will allow you to click on words and phrases and things like that and see what has been said about this. So if you're reading, let's just take, for example, 1 Nephi 1-2, which is the second verse in, in the whole Book of Mormon, but is probably one of the most confusing and enigmatic texts there is. What the heck does Nephi mean when he says that he's writing in the learning of the Jew, uh, the, yeah, the language of the Egyptians and the learning of the Jews? Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, They in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.